All right, guys. So it's fall again, and I know we're just a few months away from Creogs. Nick, I'm always looking for places to find good information to make sure that my residents have good information for their exams. And also, you know, I continue to refresh my knowledge of OBGYN. Well, yeah. I mean, you're already listening to what I'll say in my humble opinion is the best podcast in OBGYN, but we also (laughs) have some great other resources available through the resident core curriculum with our friends at the OBG Project. Definitely. The nice thing about the OBG project is that not only do they have the resident core, they have an OBG L&D ebook and other things like the second trimester ultrasound atlas, all of which you can access for free as a resident if you sign up. Head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and again, get the OBG project and all their resources free for all four years of residency. Just again, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. All right, guys, so today we are back with another exciting episode. Today we're going to talk about some popular slash controversial birthing trends um, and importantly, how the obstetrician should address them if your patient brings them up to you. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, I'm real excited for this, Faye. Um, But We'll identify first some popular birthing trends that are going on in the United States. We'll actually dive into the science, um, if there is any, behind some of these trends. And then finally, we'll discuss how to approach patients who are desiring of these birthing trends. Yeah, I think that's really, that's the roadmap. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Faye, I know you're deep into the TikTok world and everything, um, so you know <laughs> what is on the cutting edge. But what kind of trends are we seeing out there, or at least in the United States? Yeah. So, you know, of course, there are many birthing trends that are out there. And unfortunately, as a podcast, um, we don't have the time to address all of them. And really, not all of them maybe not a lot of them, I should say, have scientific literature or robust scientific literature behind them. So what I'd like to do today is focus on some that are more controversial and may come up more often to help our colleagues navigate these trends. So the more popular ones, so to speak. And then in terms of other things like uh, uh, limiting interventions on birth, please see our other episode titled that to look at some of the other trends that we fully support, things like having a doula or other support person in labor and other types of non-pharmacologic methods for coping during labor. So check those out. But today we are going to discuss uh, first lotus birth um, or basically umbilical cord non-severance. We'll talk about vaginal seeding. And then last of all, we'll talk about placentophagy or eating the placenta. So Nick, let's kick this off. Um, Talk to us about lotus birth. What is that? Yeah. So lotus birth. I have to say that this is not one that I was very familiar with until becoming a resident. And then I heard about it for the first time and was like, what exactly is that? But as you hinted at, Faye, this is sort of delayed umbilical cord severance. So the practice of leaving the placenta attached to the umbilical cord and the baby until the cord falls up on its own. Kind of anecdotal evidence that's out there suggests that this can take somewhere between three and 10 days. Um, And as we've talked about on the show before, you know, the conventional practice is to disconnect the umbilical cord from the placenta, or from the baby, excuse me, yeah. after about 30 to 60 seconds of delayed cord clamping. You know, Faye, I, I struggle a bit to think about what the benefits might be to this, but are there any? 
you know, to talk about the benefits, I guess we should first talk about the history behind how this became more popular. So uh, Lotus Births um, had this modern resurgence, um, which is thought to be credited to someone named Claire Lotus Day in 1974. And um, Claire Day noticed um, in apes that they don't actually sever their infants from the placenta. And so decided that this was probably something that was more natural because she observed it in nature and thought that humans should also practice the same way. Now, we know that delayed cord clamping does have many benefits, as we have reviewed in a previous episode called Delayed Cord Clamping. Um, We know that delayed cord clamping can increase hemoglobin levels, improve iron stores in the first few months of life, um, increase red blood cell volume, decrease need for blood transfusions, and even decrease the risk of things like um, necrotizing enteric colitis and um, intraventricular hemorrhage. Now, on top of that, there really isn't a lot of research looking at the benefits specifically of lotus birth. But those that do practice it believe that it can increase blood and nourishment from the placenta, um, it can decrease injury to the belly button, and be a gentle, less invasive transition for the baby to the world. And sometimes people do it as a ritual to honor the placenta, though, again, there really doesn't appear to be written record of cultures that actually leave the cord uncut Um in human civilizations. Um, And also it gives patients autonomy on their desires for the delivery. And the way that it's done is the cord is not detached during birth. The placenta is usually kept in a cotton bag with a drawstring that contains some types of herbs or salt to dry and then preserve the placenta. So I think what I'm trying to say, Nick, is that unfortunately there's not a lot of good research saying that there's actually benefit to having a lotus birth. Um, So I guess, you know, turning the question back around to you then is if there really aren't any proven benefits, are there risks? Yeah, so I think kind of we're in a very similar boat, Faye. Um, you know, there are some qualitative studies out there about, again, the history and anthropology, if you will, of lotus birth. Um, and those show that many patients who practice lotus birth view the placenta as belonging to the baby and something that the baby should release when they are ready to do so. They sort of discuss lotus birth in more of a spiritual or or ritualistic kind of terminology. Medical benefit and cleanliness are often considered secondary concerns in these studies. When we look at specifically sort of medical benefit or risk, um, again, there's very little data. There's no evidence regarding the effects on cognitive or emotional development of infants or know regarding any possible benefit or risk to that, I guess you'd say. In terms of risks, there are case reports, though, that suggest the potential for infection, such as um, one case report that noted endocarditis from a staphylococcus infection. Um, additionally, case reports of omphalitis as well, so kind mm-hmm. of abdominal infection. Um, there are no data available regarding late onset sepsis associated with this, though. Really, again, just sort of these case reports of these varying infections, some of which can be serious. Um, so we know at least in sort of this anecdote that there's risk, but there's not necessarily benefit that's described in a in a medical sense. Um, just sort of this again anthropologic sense of benefit. Right. Right. Faye, it's been a long time, and I think I was an intern, actually, the last time a patient asked me about it, but what would you say to your patient regarding this practice of lotus birth or umbilical cord non-severance? 
Yeah. So first of all, you know, we should always respect the wishes and decisions of our patients. And it's really important to review the patient's beliefs um, and desires and why they specifically want to have a lotus birth. Um, I think after you kind of explore the patient's desires and wishes, um, then I think we can talk about the current evidence, which, you know, as we have reviewed, is very little evidence overall, and society recommendations if there are any. It's important to realize that right now there are no formal recommendations available from professional societies about yes or no, whether lotus birth is good or bad. Overall, from the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, they say that you know providers should conduct routine assessment and management of ill-appearing neonates um, who have their placenta still attached. Any placenta and umbilical cord attached to the affected child should be immediately removed if the child is ill-appearing, especially if there's necrotic tissue that is evident. Um, the tissue from the placenta should be cultured because it can also reflect the same organism that is causing illness in the child. And then antimicrobial coverage for anaerobic bacteria and also potentially vancomycin may be needed to be included to usual regimens to cover some of the microorganisms that may be growing on the placenta that have passed through the genitourinary tract. I think ultimately the biggest risk is infection and patients really should be counseled by us and pediatrics about the signs of neonatal infection if they feel very strongly about having a lotus birth. Um, and overall, like we said, there doesn't really appear to be significant medical benefit to the lotus birth and there are possible risks. But you know, if it's super highly desired by your patient, I think right now if we're really looking at the evidence and really looking at society recommendations, I can't say that there is anything that says we absolutely say that this is contraindicated. I would ask, Nick, you know, what are some of the things that you may want to bring up to your patients? Like, what are some situations that you may want to consider and ask your patients about should they happen about lotus birth? Yeah, I think in the same vein of autonomy phase, thinking about sort of situations where we may not consider lotus birth to be possible and whether it might be or not. So I think one of the probably the more common ones would be cesarean delivery, right? I mean, again, that's yeah. a very common obstetric intervention. Um, and it is technically possible to do that with cesarean, right? So you we do delayed cord clamping at cesarean delivery for most infants now. right? Um, and so kind of taking that one step further and detaching the placenta and all of that goes off to the pediatrics team, that is technically possible. Um, so again, if it's something that in terms of your patient's values, wishes, especially in this scenario where you know you think about a patient that may be averse to cesarean delivery in the first place with a desire for lotus birth, mm -hmm. um, reassuring the patient that you might still be able to honor their wishes and doing an indicated obstetric intervention at the same time could hopefully buy you some credit with that patient. Um, postpartum hemorrhage is another scenario that we have to consider too. And this is one where I would say that, you know, if you're in a scenario where you're trying to save the patient's life, particularly if you've got an inherent placenta, something that's just sticky, not coming down, um, worried for placenta accretus spectrum, of course, at that point, lotus birth may not really be possible. Um, and so that's a lot of on the fly counseling in that place. Mm -hmm. Um, other things that we have to consider, you know, the non-vigorous infant or the preterm infant at birth, we talked about APGAR scores a couple weeks ago, and we know that those babies are going to be at a higher risk for needing to move off expeditiously to the pediatric team. Um, there's not a lot of data in those cases, but if you are encountering something where you have a concern for a baby not being born um, at most vigorous state or would be born preterm, you should review with the patient beforehand that the cord may need to be clamped and cut to facilitate pediatric evaluation. 
Placental pathologies, again, we mentioned placenta accreta, but also vasa previa is probably another one that we should think about where lotus birth is likely not possible. Again, we don't want the fetus hemorrhaging out the other side with a vasa yeah, previa. absolutely um, not. <laughs> and then kind of the last two things that I'll touch on from the, the practical considerations of this are one, talking to the patient about placental disposal ultimately. So when the placenta does detach, again, there are things that are local laws and sanitation guidelines with respect to burying, you know, essentially what is a human product, right? So um, the placenta should not be flushed down the toilet. It shouldn't be buried close to the surface of the ground. And if it is buried, it needs to be disposed of in a location that adheres to local laws and sanitation guidelines. And then lastly, um, Patients should be careful and understanding in terms of buying the placenta bags that often accompany a lotus birth. Um, you know, in terms of all the other things, we talked a lot about infection as the primary risk here, but, you know, within these bags, we don't really know often what the material is made out of. Oftentimes, they're including a lot of herbs in there that we are not sure what those are, what the risks of them are, or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and we may not realistically be able to reassure parents what is included in all of that and if any of those components can actually harm the infant themselves. And so sort of, again, another potential risk to this um, that's avoided in most circumstances where, where we don't practice lotus birth. Um, the other thing, too, in uh, research for this podcast, um, <laughs> look at, <laughs> you know, looking at Etsy, they're kind of expensive, Faye. Yeah. Yeah, they're like $60 sometimes for a bag. And I kind of wonder, you know, are there people out there who are exploiting patients um, who want a lotus birth by selling them something that is not potentially medical grade or, you know, basically selling patients something that um, just to make money? All right. Well, I think that covers lotus birth, Faye, but let's kind of summarize final verdict. What do you think? So, you know, I think personally, uh, just because I don't see that there are any medical benefits necessarily, I probably wouldn't do it personally. Um, but I think that as long as my patient is adequately counseled both by an obstetrician and a pediatrician and they understand the risks um, and the overall, it seems like, lack of benefits, but they still desire to do it because of, you know, ritualistic or spiritual kind of ways to connect with their baby um, and they understand why sometimes it may not be possible, then I don't think it's completely unreasonable. And, and I feel that way about a lot of practices in general, actually. Um, I do think, though, that if there are specific infections that the mother has, then I'm much more likely to advise against the lotus birth due to this possible vertical transfer of those infections. So for example, if the patient develops chorioamnionitis, if they're GBS positive, if they have HIV, hepatitis, HSV, et cetera, I think in those cases, you know, that risk of infection is just too dangerous for me. And I don't think that I would advise a lotus birth at those, at those time points. All right. So we talked a lot about lotus birth, Nick. Let's move on to our second topic, um, which is also had, I think, gained more popularity a few years ago and I think maybe has dropped off a little bit more. Uh, but vaginal seeding. Yeah. So vaginal seeding is a technique meant for babies who are born via C-section with the supposition that the baby is not exposed to the maternal vaginal flora that then colonize the infants and give the opportunity for just all of that good bacterial growth. And so to make up for that, you take a cotton gauze or a swab with some of that maternal vaginal fluid and apply it to the newborn's mouth, nose, skin, etc. Um, again, purportedly, there's benefit here in 
restoration of the newborn's microbiome that would be more typical of that associated with vaginal delivery. And epidemiologic studies do show that there is a relationship between cesarean delivery and increased risk for various conditions such as allergies that in some form or fashion may be affected by the composition of the microbiome. And and non-vaginal delivery may be associated actually with changes in the microbiome, um, though important to note with those studies, it doesn't seem like those changes appear to persist for the long term. So there it is, Faye, um, in terms of thoughts of how this helps, but there's another side of this and there are certainly risks too, I'm sure. Yeah. So I I think the risks are similar to what we had discussed with lotus birth, which is infection. So vaginal seeding and placing vaginal um, fluids onto the baby has the potential to transfer, again, those pathogens um, in the genital urinary tract to the newborn that are associated with vertical transmission. So again, GBS, HIV, HSV, uh, hepatitis, syphilis, et cetera. And there are other factors also that may be related to initial colonization beyond the mode of delivery. So for example, gestational age, transfer of the microbiome via breastfeeding, for example, that may also be responsible um, for the infant's microbiome itself. Uh, And of note, I think it's important here to realize that the American Academy of Pediatricians and ACOG both recommend against vaginal seeding outside of research settings. And their recommendation is that families should be counseled regarding the risk of exposure to pathogens that may occur despite negative screening because of false negative results or acquisition of the pathogen after the screening is done. And then concerns are compounded by increased risk of infection in preterm infants, so specifically advising against this in in babies that are preterm. So knowing um, you know, the purported benefits that maybe not have, may not have panned out as well as the risks, Nick, how would you counsel your patients if they come to you and say, hey, I need to have a C-section, but I want to do vaginal seeding? Sure. I mean, again, it's always important to discuss the patient's beliefs, motivations, understanding, and get a sense of, again, what's important to them about their, their birth experience and to understand, is it really like I'm looking for vaginal seeding or I'm looking for some other aspects that I can control, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if the patient is adamant about vaginal seeding, certainly we should review that currently there's no data to suggest vaginal seeding leads to benefits, but there is data out there, as you explained, Faye, about possible harm, particularly with infectious morbidity. Um, and we can't control ultimately what patients do when they leave the hospital or go home, but ACOG and the AAP at this point recommend against vaginal seeding outside of a research protocol, um, and so we, we wouldn't encourage this practice ultimately. All right, the the last one and the one I think of all of them that might creep me out the most, Faye, and I'm just being <laughs> honest about my feelings here. That is not a dig at anybody listening to the podcast who would do this, um, but I wouldn't do it. I'll just say that straight up, and that's placenta phage. You're eating the placenta. Yeah. Uh, well, the good thing is, Nick, I don't think you are able to create a placenta, so <laughs> I don't know true. if it's going to be an option for you. Uh, but placentophagy is actually eating the placenta, um, and usually the placenta is prepared by steaming, followed by dehydration, and then grinding to a powder, and then it's encapsulated that allows patients to then uh, consume that uh, that pill or the multiple capsules in which it comes in. Um, however, there are also other practices that are less common, and this includes eating the placenta raw or cooked or blended into some liquid extract. So there's multiple ways that the placenta could be consumed. The purported benefits, um, you know, one is done for spiritual or ritual reasons. um, And there are patients that claim that it will increase milk supply or improve energy and decrease things like postpartum depression. Um, Though, again, these results really have not uh, panned out or been substantiated with research. Talk to us then about the risks, Nick, of placenta veggie. 
So there are no human studies of placenta phage that are formal. Um, beyond those that are just self-reported surveys that, again, purport some sort of benefit, um, but again, are limited in terms of their scientific method. There is some literature, though, with evidence of direct neonatal harm, and this actually was cases um, involving groupy strep due to horizontal transmission, ultimately. Um, so even a baby that got through birth ultimately exposed to and suffered harm from group B strep after uh, placentophagy. Um, kind of additionally or similarly to that type of scenario, really the risk with placentophagy includes, you know, just bacterial contamination from maternal genitourinary flora or during the preparation of the placenta ultimately. Um, and there's no real standard on preparation, you know, it's not like uh, a cut of beef where the USDA has like a temperature that they recommend, right? There's no optimal preparation temperature to eradicate viruses and bacteria from the placenta. There's no industry standard on this. Um, and so we really are just sort of operating without knowledge in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, Faye, we know how I feel about placenta I guess. Yeah. Um, but, but let's take a step back and be our physician selves here. How would you suggest counseling the patient in this instance? Um, like the first two scenarios, Nick, again, I think it's important to get uh, to the bottom of the patient's beliefs and motivations as to why they want to um, engage in this practice. Um, and then I think, you know, again, as physicians, it's our jobs to really discuss the current literature and the data with the patient if that's what they want. Um, and then overall, I think, you know, it's important for us to actually say that we ultimately don't recommend eating the placenta, just kind of like vaginal seeding. There's actually a, a recommendation against eating that placenta. And specifically, we really recommend, you know, against eating someone else's placenta and yeah. you know buying um, like encapsulated placental pills online or something like that we really don't recommend that um, but you know despite our counseling if someone is really really does want to engage in that practice I think um, first of all we should talk to them about uh, ways to try and make it the safest way possible for them to go about this practice the first is to review that the placenta should be professionally prepared if possible meaning don't do it at home sometimes there are midwives or there are actually services that actually prepare the placenta for you. The process really should ensure that the placental tissue gets to a high enough temperature to kill viruses and bacteria. And again, I know that we're trying to advise patients to do this, but I think it's really important, again, as you pointed out, Nick, that there's no industry standard and it's really difficult for patients and for us to figure out exactly, you know, what the practices are of different, um, you know, companies who do this for patients, like what their actual practices are and if it's safe. And then, you know, I think I would really, really recommend against um, eating the placenta if there is an infection of certain things that can be transmitted. Again, those same things, GBS, HIV, hepatitis B, et cetera. And then I think the last thing is just to say to monitor yourself as the patient and the baby closely. If either one gets sick, please, please seek professional help. Um, and similarly, if patients, you know, think that there are these purported benefits like, you know, waiting for the breast milk to come in, waiting for their postpartum depression to go away, I think it's, it's really important that if a patient is, you know, in the depth of postpartum depression to please not wait for that um, placenta effects to kick in um, and to actually seek professional help. All right, Nick. Um, so I know we talked a lot about these controversial birthing trends today and how to address them as obstetricians. Um, so why don't we go ahead and summarize? Sure. So the first practice we talked about today was lotus birth or delayed umbilical cord severance. So leaving the placenta attached to the umbilical cord and baby until the cord falls off on its own. The perceived benefit of this really was 
originated with Claire Lotus Day in the 1970s, who observed that apes don't sever their infants from the placenta. And it's developed as sort of this anthropological, spiritual benefit, potentially, to to honor the placenta or to give the baby agency when it's ready to separate on its own. There are potential risks, particularly when it comes to things like infection and cleanliness. Um, but really, there's not a lot of data that's out there about lotus birth. Ultimately, what we would say is that if there are specific infections that the mother has, we would likely advise against that. Um, but a patient who is considering it should be counseled both by OB and pediatrics about the decision to proceed with that, knowing sort of the risks that are contained and the lack of evidence for medical benefit. We then talked about vaginal seeding, which is the practice for babies who are born via C-section to inoculate them with vaginal fluid um, using a cotton swab or uh, gauze, uh, basically uh, with the belief that uh, the newborn's microbiome um, would then become more typical of a vaginal delivery uh, because epidemiologic studies show that there is a relationship potentially between cesarean sections and increased risk for various conditions such as allergies. Unfortunately, the benefits really have not been borne out in terms of actual evidence, and there are some risks of vaginal seeding to transfer pathogens to the newborn that are associated with vertical transmission. Of note, both AAP and ACOG recommend against the practice of vaginal seeding outside of the research setting. And so to counsel our patients, we really should first get to the bottom of why they feel like they want to engage in this practice, but then also review the current literature and, of course, discuss with the patients uh, the recommendations of ACOG and AAP. Finally, we talked about placentophagy, or eating the placenta in some form or fashion, usually prepared though by steaming and following by dehydration and grinding to a powder for encapsulation. The purported benefits really are spiritual in nature, but there are also claims that placentophagy may increase milk supply, improve energy, or decrease risk of postpartum depression, none of which have been substantiated in scientific literature. There is literature, though, with evidence of direct neonatal harm involving group B strep sepsis from horizontal transmission, and there are risks associated with placentophagy tied to that, again, from maternal genitourinary flora, bacterial contamination that may occur from that or from the preparation process itself. There's no industry standard with respect to placental preparation, um, and so it's hard to know who's reputable and how exactly the placenta should be prepared. Always review your patient's beliefs and motivations if they're desiring something like placentophagy. Discuss the literature and the recommendation against placentophagy. But ultimately, if the patient wants to do it, try to ensure a professional preparation and recommend against it even further if there's concern for certain things like infections that can be vertically transmitted. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, as well as on Twitter at Creogs Over Cuff One. And if you enjoy the show and want to contribute to it, you can go onto our Patreon and give us a donation at www.patreon.com slash Over Coffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have a suggestion or a correction for the show or just want to say hi to us, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 